and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm so pleased to welcome Maureen Corrigan to our program today. I'm really pleased to be here, especially for Banned Books Week. Yes, as we are taping this, Banned Books Week is going on, and the Foundation for the Library has brought in Maureen to give us a speech and let us know about the, the state of affairs and the history mm-hmm. of book banning. Now, most of our audience will know that Maureen is the literary critic for Fresh Air on NPR, but she's also the, uh, the Nikki and Jamie Grant Distinguished Professor of the Practice of Literary Criticism at Georgetown University, and she has a couple of books on her own. Have they gotten banned anywhere? <laughs> well, that's when I'll know I've really made it as an author if the books get banned. Not that I know of. <laughs> but they're entitled Leave Me Alone, I'm Reading, and so we read on how The Great Gatsby came to be and why it endures. And Gatsby has been banned. And earlier this year, a continuing education company called The Great Courses issued a series of lectures entitled Banned Books, Burn Books, Forbidden Literary Works. Yes. You've got to be extremely busy this week when it comes to Banned Books Week coming with a program like this. I am. I just came from a talk in Little Rock. I'm here. I'm talking in D.C. I'm going to eventually go on to talk in Boston about the background, especially in America, of banning books, the history of banning books, and the connections to what we're seeing today. Well, banned in Boston was (laughs) such a refrain over the years. Who was in charge of the banning up there? It depends on what we're talking about. So I I have Mark Twain on the brain right now today because uh, the adventures of Huckleberry Finn has the dubious honor of being the most banned great American novel. And Boston Public Library System banned it because of its coarse language and because Twain described such offensive things as Huck Finn scratching himself. You know, Twain's response to the banning was precious because he said, he wrote to his editor and said, well, that'll sell thousands of more copies for sure. As I just did when you asked if any of my books have been banned, Twain naturally assumed that banning would be publicity for the book and would result in better sales. We see that that can happen. Last year, Mouse, Art Spiegelman's graphic novel about the Holocaust was banned. And even though that book has been out for years and years, last year it shot up to the top of the Amazon bestseller list. But what I will be talking about tonight here in Memphis is the fact that I learned some humility in researching this course that I did for the Great Courses Company on banned and challenged books, because what I became aware of is just how fragile our inheritance is in terms of books. That books really can be silenced, they can be banned, and they can be forgotten. And bannings can be extraordinarily effective and therefore dangerous. We really have had this very brief but glorious window Mm -hmm. of availability and freedom of speech available to us, and it feels like it is slipping away. It it does. And you're right that it's a window. I mean, it it didn't always exist, (laughs) but we have a window, and now it really does seem to be threatened. And as someone who reads for a living, as I tell folks, I get upwards of 200 books a week delivered either physically or via e-galley copies to my email. Those books are submitted for consideration, for review on NPR. I have the great privilege of reading for a living, and I can read whatever I want. The thought that that privilege, that right as an American, I think of it as a democratic right, is being threatened, endangered, taken away, is honestly sickening to me. 
you have to make decisions. You have to make editorial decisions yeah. on what you do cover. Yeah. Do you take broader societal ideas into consideration so that you yourself aren't imposing some type of censorship? You know, we, we like to use the old cliche on fresh air that we cover the waterfront. So Terry Gross interviews a lot of authors. I try to break out of my comfort zone as much as possible. By that I mean, you know, I'm a native New Yorker. If, if left to my own devices, I'd probably every other book I, I read would be about New York during some golden age. I try to read nonfiction. I try to read books by authors from other countries. I try to read books that naturally I wouldn't gravitate to. And when I say that, I'm thinking, for instance, of dystopian fiction. Again, if I were a civilian reader, I'd probably say, no, I, don't, I can't take any more dystopian fiction. I, you know, the world is dystopian enough. But it's such a prominent genre today, and especially for young writers, this seems to be a way to not only imaginatively deal with the dystopian elements in our own world, ecological, political, but also sometimes to imagine a way forward, a way out of them. So I just reviewed a book by a young author, C. Pam Zhang, and it's called Land of Milk and Honey. It's a wonderful novel. It is a dystopian novel. And the premise is that a young chef is invited to the mountaintop fortified enclave run by a mogul who sounds a lot like Elon Musk, who's retreated to this enclave with a bunch of scientists and wealthy people, while the rest of the world is covered in plant-killing smog. And the story unravels from there. It's wonderful. It's vivid. If I were just a regular person and perusing titles, I probably wouldn't have gravitated to it. But I'm curious about especially what younger authors are doing with our current racial, ecological, political situation. I'm curious about how they're talking about it in print. So I do try to break out and do nonfiction, history, sometimes even graphic novels, which is a little tricky with radio, you know, because it's a visual form. But I am very grateful for the responsibility as a critic that I can't just write about books I like, but sometimes books that maybe I personally, they're not my taste, but I recognize that they're good. And those are two different things. Did anyone scratch on the walls of that citadel and this too shall pass? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going to spoil the novel for you. <laughs> so what advice would you give to readers who want to engage but may not be able to connect with material, especially if, you know, in this case, like, there are some things that are, like, morally repugnant to them. Yeah. I think the advice is kind of an extension of what I just said. In a way, you kind of have to recognize your own tastes and their limitations. I like a good story. I tend to pull back when, for instance, there's a novel where the main character doesn't have a name. You know, it interferes with my connection to that character a bit. I recognize that about myself. So think about your own biases and what goes into your own taste as a reader. And then maybe take a step outward and say, well, I've heard this book, which on the surface of it doesn't seem like it's my kind of thing. I've heard that it's good. Let me step into another world here. Let me step into someone else's way of thinking. Of course, as a critic, as an English professor, as a lifelong reader, I think one of the greatest gifts that books give us is saying, 
come into this world that's not yours. Walk in the shoes of somebody who is not you and see what that experience is like. If a book is good, fiction, nonfiction, graphic novel, whatever, it can afford us that experience of opening up our own sense of what it's like to be alive. So you may not be comfortable, you may not like a book, but sometimes those are the books that teach you more. And that seems to be one of our problems in America is yeah. the unwillingness to be uncomfortable for yes. any, yes. any moment of time. Yes, yes. And also the worry about offending, the worry about traumatizing. I know that language has been used especially in book challenges to say middle schoolers, you know, the children will be traumatized. Sometimes it's used in challenges for grade school as well. I think what we're also living through is a period where any kind of earned expertise is being challenged. And so what we're also seeing is a challenge to the expertise of educators, of librarians, of people whose job it is to know what children pretty much can take what they're ready to be exposed to and what they're ready not to be exposed to. I want the librarians and the teachers to be in charge of those decisions. I do not want to give the full weight of those decisions to parents, to lawmakers. Let's let the experts decide. But you yourself, in speaking with educators and with librarians, do you think there's any sense of a guideline that librarians could adopt to make things appropriate? Because, I mean, there are books that we, we don't the Turner Diaries showing right, up in the middle, right, middle right, grade. Right, right, right. We're not going to read Mein Kampf in third grade, of course. But those guidelines have to be, again, put together by experts. Let's get some child psychologists in there, you know? I don't just want people who are saying, I don't like this book, to be the ones in charge of whether children can read it. You mentioned dystopian fiction earlier. It seems the, the concept of utopia was <laughs> key early on in some challenges to books. Yeah, I mean, uh, the idea of presenting an alternative world to the world that one lived in was considered a little dangerous. And so, right, Thomas More's Utopia itself was a book that was silenced, that was challenged, because implicit in any utopian writing is a criticism of the existent world. Right, so utopian fiction, dystopian fiction, those, those are the kinds of stories that usually attract some challenges. And of course, the example today would be uh, Margaret Atwood's A Handmaid's Tale, a dystopian vision of life in the future that's becoming more and more familiar to some of us in terms of what life is like. You know, that's been struck off the list of many high school systems. I know it seems like over the years, I'll hear of a concept with, like with A Handmaid's Tale mm -hmm. and go, oh, that's, that's a little bit over the top. Yeah. Or hearing the phrase rape culture when, mm -hmm. but then you hear about the suppression of Lori Hall Sanderson's uh, mm -hmm. speech and things like that, and you go, I think these people were onto something. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, we credit that, right, with our artists, that they sometimes have a sense of what's just over the horizon. <laughs> and it, certainly Atwood, who I've read several times, that vision of the world that her character lives in in The Handmaid's Tale was considered to be so interestingly extreme <laughs> at the time that she that novel was published in the 80s. But now... Not so much. It's almost like when Patty Chayefsky making of Network yeah, seemed yeah, over the top yeah, and now it seems yeah, tame almost in right. its way. That's right, yeah. Why did you decide to approach this as a great course instead of a, a traditional book project? 
the invitation came to me. So that's, that's the simple answer. And, and the invitation was that the Great Courses Company was interested in a course that would run 24 lectures and would start with the Inquisition <laughs> and go all the way up to the present time. In, in, in my case, I decided to end with critical race theory. That's the most contemporary area where we're having books being challenged. I think the advantage of having it be an online course is that a lot of library systems buy these courses and it's streaming. I mean, people can access this course who might not, you know, ordinarily go into a library for a book or go into a bookstore for a book or order a book on Amazon. Maybe people who are just more comfortable with having things presented to them in the way that TV or obviously online streaming services do. I assume you were chilled a few years ago when Amazon post facto deleted people's copies of a certain, I can't remember which book it was. I can't remember either, but. But it was just so chilling that the book would disappear. I'm chilled when any book disappears. So again, we're, we have the recent instances of authors preemptively canceling their own books because of the pre-publication uh, responses on book talk and various other forms. Goodreads. Yeah, Goodreads. That, you know, that, oh, that YA that, trend of a couple of years ago yeah. was almost frightening. It is frightening. And P.S., many of the people who are challenging or responding negatively to books before they're even published, how many of them have gotten an, an advanced copy of that book? I wonder. <laughs> Back in the good old days of Twitter, I saw someone say, before any book challenge goes through, the person should have to read the book its entirety and write an essay on it and have it graded by the teachers right. teaching it. And we've seen in the book challenges that have made their way into the legal system that sometimes people haven't actually read the book that they're objecting to. They've heard about it. Or they've heard about a certain word in the book or a certain scene, you know, a passage that's oftentimes taken out of context and demonized the entire book. Uh, I can't remember, was it for Ulysses or later Chatterley's Lover where the judge insisted the jury read, read the book? the entire book. That was Lady Chatterley's Lover. He made the jury sit in the jury box and read the book. They couldn't leave the courtroom. So what a wonderful exercise. You actually have to read this book. You don't, you, you don't just listen to the arguments pro and con. And it was fascinating that he decided, the judge, that the book should be determined on its entire yes, merit and um, not just a few yes. salacious passages. And that has been the judgment of the judges, not only in the Lady Chatterley's Lover trial, but also Ulysses and Allen Ginsberg's poem, Howl, in the 50s. Do not judge the work by a discrete word or group of words or a discrete passage. It has to be the entirety of the work that we judge it on. Much like the Lenny Bruce uh, yeah, trials where yeah, he would right. be quoted by someone who had no comic timing. That's right, that's right. I also think, you know, it's, you mentioned comic timing and Lenny Bruce. I also think sometimes that comedy gets books in trouble, that kind of sarcastic or ironic attitude or the, you know, Mark Twain and his coarse humor. I'm thinking of the tr traditional list of Catch-22, uh, Catch our great American novels. A lot of them try to capture the American voice 
And for many of us, the American voice is also a comic voice, holding Caulfield's voice in Catcher in the Rye, you know, uh, to kill a mockingbird. You know, we You're pointing out absurdities and people yeah, don't that's want right. to think that's their right. beliefs are absurd. And and for some readers that doesn't sit well. You do give even coverage because there are many examples in your courses about books that were first attacked by perhaps conservatives and then later attacked by progressives. Yes. yes. And it seems like they're a number of books out there that are equal opportunity offenders, it seems. There are a number of books, and let's stick with The Adventures of Huck Finn. It's published in the 19th century, immediately challenged. We mentioned Boston Public Library System banning the book for its coarse language. It keeps getting challenged for that, but then post-1960s, it's challenged because of its liberal use of the N-word. Some of the challenges I mentioned in my course, one challenge that actually did go and uh, become a court case was initiated in Arizona by an African-American mother who said that her child was hurt personally by having to read a book that had the N-word in it over and over and over again. The judge in that case, I think he made a wise ruling. He said, we can't ban books on the basis of their power to offend. If we do that, then Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice potentially could offend Jewish readers. A novel by Hemingway could potentially offend female readers. You know, just keep going down the list of who could be offended by various works. I think if we grant books the power, as we do, those of us who love books, to change our lives, to affect the way we think, you know, to get into our imaginations. If we grant that books are powerful, then yes, they do have the power to offend. They even have the power to be dangerous. Mein Kampf, for instance. But the judge ruled that it was worth that risk rather than sweeping Mark Twain's, not only Huck Finn, but also The Adventures of Tom Sawyer off the shelves. I think that's the right ruling. Especially with Huckleberry Finn in particular, because when the word stops being used, mm -hmm. that's when you know that Huck has recognized him for his humanity. Yes, and, and of course, uh, you're probably aware there were attempts in the 1990s to cleanse the book of that language. There was such an outcry against that kind of book cleansing because people rightly said, wait, you're erasing history. You're literally whitewashing this book and you're making America look you know, more progressive than it was back then. Right now, we're hearing about similar attempts, which I think are, are the, the publishers are, are actually going forward with, to clean up the language of Ian Fleming's novels, the James Bond novels, and also Roald Dahl's novels for children. And you talk about Theodore Geisel's estate yes, stopping yes. retailing certain titles because of yes. racist caricatures right. in they, the art. They, they've made the decision to pull those books off of publication lists. And so how do you feel about that personally? I don't think they should do it. I don't think they should do it. And I know it's easy for me to sit here as a cisgender white woman who's had the advantages of education and, and saying, let freedom reign, let, let these books be out there. The words can hurt people, the images can hurt people. But if given the absolute choice between pulling anything that can potentially hurt people versus enjoying our democratic freedom to read what we want, I will always vote for the freedom, the freedom to read. 
What about propaganda that may be coming from other governments, kind of like Russian disinformation? We need education, right? I did not talk about this in my course, but there was an amazing program during World War II that disseminated over 120 million books to servicemen, Army and Navy guys serving overseas. They were called the Armed Services Editions, pulp paper, everything from Moby Dick, Homer, to uh, Margaret Mead's coming of age in Samoa, to hard-boiled American detective fiction. The, the range of titles was extraordinary. And one of the reasons that program came to be during the war was in response to the images that we Americans saw of book burnings in Germany. It was the decision of librarians, of educators, of government officials who were worried about propaganda perhaps reaching Americans' minds and you know, kind of distorting the way that we thought of what was going on in Europe. It was their decision that the best way to fight words that came through books like that or, or radio programs like that was by reading more books, was becoming more educated. You fight words with other words. So how can people find your course? It's online, and I think you even maybe get a free trial of at least one of the episodes. Uh, the, the Great Courses offers that to people who might be interested in, in watching it. But apart from buying it yourself, I think uh, a lot of library systems have bought copies of, of the entire course and you can find it through your local library, I hope. Is there a book you read when you were a child do you regret reading at such an early age? <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of one. I thought you were going to ask me the usual question of, uh, you know, is there a book you read as a child that you went back to? I've gone back to my Nancy Drew books, which I've kept, and talk about offensive words and offensive stereotypes of people. Those original Nancy Drew books are studded with them. But I think that's more valuable to keep those original stories rather than clean them up. I was a very young person at the time this happened, but I was really surprised to read about Conemaugh County, West Virginia. Mm. You know, the case that people who are interested in book banning and especially legal scholars study that case. Just the eruption of anger and violence in West Virginia over that curriculum. It's, I mean, it would be kind of interesting for a reporter or someone who does long-form journalism to return there today and to maybe update that story. Well, it seems a cycle that we repeat over and over in America. There'll be social progress, and then there'll be a period of backlash and revanchism. That's the uh, optimistic reading <laughs> rather than the straight downward spiral. So early on, the Catholic Church in Western civilization yeah. uh, was the one behind a lot of the suppression of books. Did you sense any type of change when it became more of a state-oriented censorship? To answer that question, that broadly it became more far-reaching. You know, the Catholic Church was interested in, in questions of heresy and also immorality. I don't recall any bannings instigated by the Catholic Church that had anything to do with, for instance, race, or I don't even think homosexuality was something they were on the lookout for back then. The index, which was the list of condemned books, I think that was the term they used, the books condemned by the Catholic Church, actually extended 
its existence into the early 60s. I mean, it gave me a chill when I realized that I was a Catholic schoolgirl at the time that the index was still in existence. But the last book that was officially condemned by the Catholic Church was Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex. I guess they found de Beauvoir's feminism somehow against the nature of things as they saw it. But then Vatican II came around and... Vatican II came around and the mass in Latin was no more and right, the, the index disappeared. The index also went after films because I remember my parents took me to a James Bond movie, which they probably shouldn't have done. <laughs> but it was, you know, the 60s and we all went to the movies on a Saturday. I remember that on a Monday morning, our nun asked what we had done over the weekend. And I somehow knew enough not to say that I had been to see whatever James Bond movie it was. Now, you teach at Georgetown University, which is a Jesuit school. Have you ever felt any pressure not to address certain books while on faculty? You know, the Jesuits often get in trouble with the Vatican and have historically because they're considered the intellectual (laughs) group of priests. So I have never been told what I can teach, what I can't teach. To my knowledge, I've never had a complaint registered by a student or a parent on what I assign. And plenty of the books I assign would be you know, ripe for that kind of complaint. The only instance I'm aware of, of the church getting involved, the, you know, the church, capital C, getting involved in what Georgetown does, is when I first began teaching at Georgetown early 90s, the pro-choice group had an office on campus, as did all other student clubs. And a group of very conservative Catholics, led by Pat Buchanan, threatened to have Georgetown divested of its Catholic status in canon court if that choice group wasn't exiled to an office off campus. So that's what happened. As someone who grew up Catholic yourself, is there any concerns you have with the current composition of the Supreme Court having five very conservative Catholic members and one liberal Catholic member? I mean, my concerns have already been realized. Women's right to choose has been taken away. Do you think they'll uphold Florida's drastic approach to teaching of or lack of teaching about sexuality, even in the college level? If I had to bet on it, I think they may. But... You know, we've been pleasantly surprised very recently with some of the decisions of the court. I really don't know, but yeah, I'm very concerned. I'm also, you know, I I know that world, (laughs) and I'm not mocking Catholicism. I still consider myself that special branch of Catholic, the the somewhat fallen away Catholic, but I, I still consider myself a person of faith, so I'm not mocking that world. But I don't think the Catholic Church or any other religious group should have the right to interfere in secular public education. It seems there's a group of people who are very offended when they're not allowed the freedom to oppress others. Yeah, it does. You've said it. <laughs> I can't say it any better than that. I mean, it is, it's a form of bullying. I do think it's a backlash against um, what are seen as, you know, people like you and me, you know, elites, people who've had Um, maybe even advanced education. Again, your knowledge doesn't really impress me. So I'm going to tell you what I think, and if I have the power, I'm going to enforce what I think. 
One person I'm really impressed by is David Hogg, really trying to push forward with limiting the number of guns that are accessible in this country to all the people they're accessible to. And I've heard him interviewed in other places, including Fresh Air, and he talks about having grown up with guns himself. He knows how to use a gun. He shows up at rifle clubs. He enjoys, or used to enjoy anyway, target practice. But nowadays, he'll show up at rifle ranges, at, in gun clubs, and just start to engage. And at first, people think, oh, he's here just to you know, preach his message. But he knows enough about that world that he can engage in a rational way, talk to people about limitations. I think it takes a lot of courage to not just talk to the already converted, but that's what we all have to learn how to do. Maureen Corrigan is the author of the lecture series, Banned Books, Burn Books, Forbidden Literary Works, which is available through the great courses. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.